0: Just a quick note before starting this episode of Talk Evidence. We do a range of podcasts at the BMJ and we want to know if we're doing enough for everyone. So we've launched a survey that we'd really appreciate you filling out. It's very short and asks you questions like where you are and what your specialty is and what we could do in the podcast to make them better for you. So have a look at the link in the podcast text or on bmj.com podcasts and please tell us a little about yourself we'll not share the details with anyone else and uh, you really have an opportunity here to help make these podcasts work for you so again have a look in the podcast text or bmj.com podcasts to let us know what you think thanks and now on with the show Welcome back to Talk Evidence, our regular look at the world of EBM. I'm Duncan Jarvis, multimedia editor for the BMJ, and I'm joined by our usual panel, Joe Ross and Helen McDonald. Hi, Helen. Can you uh, introduce yourself for everyone?
1: Hi, Duncan. I'm Helen McDonald. I'm research integrity editor at BMJ.
0: And being very busy, whipping all of those researchers into place. And Joe, hello. Welcome back.
2: Hi everyone, Uh, my
1: name is Joe Ross.
2: I'm a professor of medicine and public health at Yale and is also the U.S. uh, outreach and research editor at the BMJ.
0: I'm excited to say that we're not talking about COVID, we're getting back to the sort of classic pace of talk evidence. Um, and we we've got some classic topics as well: nutritional epidemiology, overdiagnosis, cancer diagnosis—all uh, of the things we love to talk about. So let's kick off with our first paper, um, which has been doing incredibly well on BMJ.com this week. Uh, as always, with food research, um, there's there's a huge amount of interest in it. Uh, Helen, tell us what it is you're going to be talking
1: about. I will. Thanks Duncan. Um this this is very exciting because it's food it's food but I wouldn't say it's necessarily epidemiology it's actually a food trial which um which filled us with lots of excitement. So um setting this paper up the authors say that about a third of fractures happen in people who live in an institution um and they are linked to chronic diseases and frailty and bone fragility um and all those things increase your risk of falls and fracture. And people who live in those institutions, typically older people, are less likely to be on anti-resortive treatments, um, in part because there's less evidence in older age groups. Perhaps a balance of benefit and harm isn't in, it, in their favour. There are adverse effects and, and they're also fairly expensive. So what, um, what the, might the alternatives be? One option is perhaps a better diet. And people in institutions um, may have uh, poor nutrition particularly lower intakes of calcium and protein-richer foods, which are linked to slowing of bone loss. So these authors have done a non-pharmaceutical intervention basically to up the calcium and protein content of existing meals for institutionalised adults who have enough vitamin D um, but have a lower calcium and protein intake um, than might be recommended. So they want to try and aim for these folks to have more like 1,300 milligrams per day of calcium and around one gram of protein per kilogram of their body weight. And this study took place in 60 residential care facilities um, in a metropolitan area of Melbourne, uh, Australia, between 2013 and 2016, and it included about 7,000 older adults. They randomised the care facilities uh, one-to-one. At the time the trial started, the facilities um, weren't required to feed their um, residents more than two servings of dairy food a day. um, And they assessed this via menu audits. And so what they did in this study was to up that, up those servings of dairy. So a serving of dairy is 250 milliliters of milk, about 200 grams of yogurt or 40 grams of cheese. Sadly, I was to discover as I read this buttercream and ice cream were not provided <laughs> as part of this chart to is a bit got sad. I know. Yeah, cheese at least and I am a big cheese fan. I'm just going to
2: assume they got ice cream because that's what really made me like this trip. I prefer so that
1: idea. That, do you know, that was what I was thinking of. I was thinking about sort of trays of food with that kind of melting blob of ice cream that you get at the same time as your main course and then by the time you actually eat the ice cream it's melted. Um, anyway, I digress. What they were hoping to measure was to see if the intervention reduced the risk of fracture by 30% with 80% power over the course of about two years. In reality, most people in the study will follow for about 15 months. And they also look for secondary outcomes of um, falls and change to bone morphology and biochemistry. So what did they find? Um, they found that indeed, the residents ate more dairy food, unsurprising, it increased from about two to three and a half servings a day um, at the inter- intervention facilities. And in the intervention group, um, 3.7% had a fracture and in the control group, 5.2% had a fracture. That means by some magic that there was a 33% reduction in the risk of fractures of any type and a 46% reduction in hip fracture and an 11% reduction in the risk of falls relative to the controls. There wasn't any difference in mortality between the groups so i picked this out i thought it was quite interesting um and the thing that most interested me i guess was that um, in the discussion the authors say that there have been various studies done looking at whether calcium supplements can reduce falls and fractures and the general answer is that they don't so there's a meta-analysis and they say that. Reports only two out of 17 trials um, do do show a benefit. But they highlighted that poor compliance and a high number of dropouts is really common. So this, to me, seemed to address the question quite nicely because it was sort of making the intervention much nicer and rather than eating a kind of crumbly tablet of calcium, which I can't imagine is particularly nice or appetising, instead the residents got to have rather yummy food, even taking out the ice cream um, incorporated into their menus. What did you think, Joe?
2: Well, no, no, I, I, I very much agree. I mean, I think there's two really interesting aspects to this paper. One one is exactly what you're just describing, which is a, a whole foods approach to, uh, you know, addressing a, you know, a clinical concern or, you know, the malnourishment, right, as opposed to an individual supplement with a calcium tablet or a vitamin D uh, pill, you know the idea is you know let's let's try to supplement with a whole food nutritional diet, give them lots of yogurt, milk, hopefully ice cream, cheese. Um, you know in order to supplement their their protein and calcium intake, and they do find a benefit. And it could be because, you know, they were del- these pa- these patients were malnourished specifically with respect to those types of nutrients, or maybe it was simply that they were not eating enough. And this kind of you know just this sort of whole food approach works. The, the other thing thing that I like about this is, you know, there's often a lot of observational research focused on individual vitamins or, you know, aspects of your diet, you know, eating green, green leafy vegetables or something, and its association with an impact, uh, you know, a a clinical consequence like cardiovascular disease or cancer or fractures or whatnot. Um, And sometimes the observational studies and the trials are aligned, but oftentimes those trials are focused on those narrow interventions as well. Um, And here we're sort of, again, going back to, you know, this whole foods approach, which I think is just more aligned with how people eat in the real world. And so it's more useful (laughs) uh, for how people can think about, you know, making changes to their diet. Like it's hard to, uh, you know, say like say specifically I'm going to eat more of, you know. Thing A or vitamin B or whatever it is, but instead, like, oh, I just have to eat more dairy and calcium, and look, that's great for this, very you know, kind of at-risk older population who the menus are planned for. Uh, you know, it seems like there's some benefits,
1: and it's it's quite nice because a lot of these foods are quite yummy.
2: I was going to say the the deliciousness must
0: also be a sort of whole <laughs> quality of life thing. Because if it was a trial well.
1: of greens served in an institution i think that is a a category of of food whole food maybe that is not so deliciously processed (laughs) Mm -hmm. when served to hundreds of people at a time i I see what you mean
2: (laughs) i mean if it was fresh kale or or you know then maybe or fresh lettuce it could be better but you're right particularly if it's cooked uh, (laughs) the risk is high uh that it's not going to be so tasty um in this case you just get a chunk of cheese
3: Some of life's most important questions are about health. And when people think about healthcare, they think about doctors, scans, tests and treatments. At Siemens Healthineers, we think about those too. With about 70% of clinical decisions based on laboratory test results, staying on top of the latest advances in clinical chemistry is essential to providing the best care. This November, Siemens Health & Ears has free online educational sessions to help you learn about relevant advances in clinical diagnostics. Register for free today to explore sessions featuring new research and innovations in cardiac care, blood diseases, and AI. And create an agenda for live streaming events. Visit siemens healthineerscom euromedlab or Google Siemens Health Ears euromedlab. We pioneer breakthroughs in healthcare for everyone, everywhere.
0: So, we are sticking with bones. This is apparently a bones day. Um, Joan, you've got a paper on the management of pain caused by hip and knee osteoarthritis.
2: Yeah, uh, this is actually you know, a, a really impressive uh, meta-research paper uh, done by a, a group in Canada where they're trying to better understand the effectiveness and safety of different preparations and doses of uh, you know, what we call NSAIDs, non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, opioids, and paracetamol for knee and hip osteoarthritis uh, pain and hip function. Um, or physical function. And um, what they do is they you know, systematically review the literature with this is not the first time this has been done, but this is a really comprehensive and up-to-date analysis. They look for all trials that compare uh, any of these different types of drugs to each other or to placebo. Uh, they identify almost 200, a total of 192 trials with um, almost 103,000 participants uh, for 90 different active preparations or doses. Um, and they just try to summarize the literature. This has, you know, really important clinical implications. Is you know we all you know are taking care of patients who come in uh, with osteoarthritis pain, and the question is always sort of what to recommend, what to do. And what I liked best about this paper is the way they reviewed the literature. Is they kind of uh, they sort of show both sides of the scales. They try to better characterize the effectiveness, uh, looking at various. Um, uh, measures of uh, pain and function, uh, you know, such as pain scores or in the function. They, there's a range of scores, like global osteoarthritis function score, the WOMAC physical function score. I mean, lots of different types of scales are used in these types of trials. But on the other side, they look at safety because we all know that many of these different uh, drug preparations are associated with adverse effects. Some short term. Uh, some long term, uh, like opioids and addiction. And so, um, what they focus on, though, in terms of safety, uh, is essentially the likelihood. Uh, that someone's going to drop out of the trial due to an adverse event. It's a very blunt measure, uh, but it gets at the sort of global concern about uh, drug safety. Um, and they they lay out all of the drugs at various doses, and they talk about the average effect size, um, and they standardize that measure, and they provide a, what they call a probability that the that the drug at, at that dose leads to a minimally important difference for patients. And at the same time, they provide an odds ratio uh, for risk of dropping out of the trial. And they have these really lovely um, figures two and three within the paper that you just have to visualize to to see where they show the the median effect sizes and the um, the the odds ratio of the dropout uh, due to adverse events for you know each drug and dose. And you get a you get a good sense of where there's greater risk uh, at, at the expense of sort of what works better. they The authors conclude um, that uh, two drugs at specific doses, etoricoxib at 60 milligrams a day and diclofenac at 150 milligrams a day, seem to be most effective uh, for pain and function in patients with osteoarthritis. But they note that uh, these treatments are probably not appropriate for patients with comorbidities or for long-term use because of the greater increase in the risk of adverse events. I think though that this allows uh, clinicians uh, to sit with their patients and sort of talk through the benefits and harms um, in a very useful way. Um, And I know Helen, you you really liked figure four, Uh, I don't know which which is a a nice way of sort of visualizing all these data together. Um, I don't know if you wanna comment on that.
1: Well, I will, I enjoyed your little guide through Joe because I think one of the things that I, I love the concept of a network meta-analysis. I hate the reality of reading them because... So in this concept of network meta-analysis, not only are you gathering together all the evidence, but you're gathering together loads of different treatment options and trying to work out not only um, how does drug A compare to drug B, you're looking at a whole variety. And I think you mentioned 90 formulations (laughs) that were were in here. So this is mega. And I I think trying a mega meta-analysis and I think trying to find um ways that you can share the information can sometimes be a bit of a struggle and I enjoyed in fact Joe tipped me off to the presence of figure four due to my general um the general days that network meta-analysis <laughs> sends me into but I'll, I'll see if I can paint this picture in your mind to simplify things but what you've got is a graph and going up vertical axis you have the probability of reaching the minimally important difference for pain i.e did it work going across the side you've got the probability of dropping out due to adverse events um and then you've got scattered all over it these purple and yellow and blue and pink dots and that might sound intimidating, but when you look at it, um, and as Joe said, as you're trying to sort of have a think about the person who's with you and what might suit them, I think what you what you kind of um, can see is that kind of trade-off of what's being effective versus what is um, also causing you a lot of um, adverse events. With the general summary being that the, the NSAIDs seem to be the most effective and it's the opioids in particular that are giving you lots of bother so i think definitely a clear message to come from this seems to be that the opioids aren't much use i don't know joe the thing i was going to ask you was when you read this paper did you get much sense of the time scale that these studies were happening over did you get the sense that this was kind of pain in the sense of things are a bit flared up at the moment and this is people who are coming looking for um, something to take for uh, maybe some days or or weeks Um, while things are are very uncomfortable or a sense that this is kind of like chronic use of um, of these medications or maybe a mixture
2: it, it, it's definitely a mixture I think the I think over half the studies had about a, a 12 week or less duration um, and then maybe a third or so had 12 to 24 weeks very very few long-term studies we should, I mean which is Not surprising. That's what you you see in the osteoarthritis literature. Lots of short term trials, even though patients have osteoarthritis for years and years and years, and continue to use treatments day after day in order to be able to function in their daily life. The other thing I thought was intriguing about uh, figure four, Helen. I don't know if you noticed it. Like paracetamol does not. Not it's. It just does not look very good. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you know, I know we. Oh, often don't
1: te- i have to look at it again.
2: We often tell our patients to sort of alternate with NSAIDs uh, and, and paracetamol, or in the US we use acetaminophen. But uh, I mean, let's just say uh, the, their, their boxes, in terms of the probability of a minimally important difference, were kind of way down the left. They don't seem to cause a lot of harm, and they don't seem to do a lot of benefit.
1: No, it's kind of hovering. In the best case scenario, it's hovering at at it at about sort of thirty percent of people reaching. Um, minimally important difference for pain with paracetamol with yeah about five five percent dropout so yeah it's not great is it
0: <laughs> great well uh helen thanks for that valiant attempt to explain through the medium of audio what was going on in a graph but of course <laughs> i will link to it in the text for you everyone let me tell <laughs> you what i can see That's very poetic uh well done um but yeah, I will put a link in so uh, everyone can go and have a look at it for themselves. Do you have time in your day to stay current with the ever changing medical information needed to treat your patients? With your busy schedule, it can't be much. That's why you need up to date. UpToDate provides accurate, evidence-based clinical information and treatment recommendations in an organised and searchable format, so you can find answers you can trust quickly and easily. Join the growing network of over 2 million medical professionals worldwide who rely on UpToDate in their daily practice. Visit go.uptodate.com talk. That's go.uptodate.com talk. And use promo code Talk to save twenty five US dollars on your annual or longer subscription.
1: Duncan, you mentioned that we were going to talk about overdiagnosis today, and we are. Um, So, overdiagnosis often happens at the expense of underdiagnosis elsewhere in the healthcare system and um, overdiagnosis has been a bmj campaign for a long time and one of the people who bmj have collaborated with in a number of projects has been stephen woolishan who's a professor of medicine at the dartmouth institute Um, he also for full disclosure um says that he works on the board of preventing overdiagnosis and on the steering committee as i do he describes himself as a bmj whatever that might mean, and also worked in general internal medicine in the US, and I was lucky enough to catch up with him earlier this week. Stephen, thank you so much for joining me, especially so early in the morning. Um, and I know you have some exciting news, or at least this is exciting news if you are into overdiagnosis and academia. Tell us, uh, tell us what's happened that's so exciting.
4: Right. Well, <clears throat> not everyone um, finds library science to be thrilling. So uh, just a <laughs> warning. I, I do. But the, the exciting news is that um, the Public Library of Medicine, so the, the National Library of Medicine in the United States, um, has um, decided to include a new MESH header. So MESH is the medical subject headings. That's the vocabulary they use to index um, and catalog uh, research in uh, in journal articles, books, et cetera, to facilitate searching. And we've now got a new term for overdiagnosis. So back in 2013, at the first Preventing Overdiagnosis Conference, Lisa Schwartz and I, um, we gave a plenary talk. And one of the things we did was we wanted to show um, the, the, how common the term overdiagnosis was, both in the um, lay, lay literature, so in the media, and also in the professional literature, and we were surprised. Um, we hadn't really thought about it before. But we were surprised when we looked in the in the medical literature that there was no index for it, no no header for it, and uh, so we had to do a, a, a you know look full text search which doesn't sound like a big deal, but the problem is it's very insensitive and it's very nonspecific. So we knew we were missing stuff and we were finding stuff that was irrelevant. And it was just a pain in the neck thing. And so we always sort of kind of thought, wouldn't it be nice to have a proper term? And um, during COVID, (laughs) uh, during a a little bit of extra time on my hands, I decided to take this on. And so I called the the, the National Library of Medicine, PubMed, and I... um, and I just worked my way up. Uh, you know, I just called and said, "Hey, I'd like to add a term." And uh, they didn't hang up on me. And eventually, I got to the right person. And I had this big, long argument, you know, for why they should do it. And after about maybe ten seconds, he was like, "Oh, that's a great idea." Um, the term is, I'll I'll read you the the the, the, um, the definition, which I wrote with Barry Kramer. Um, It's the labeling of a person with a disease or abnormal condition that would not have caused the person harm if left undiscovered, creating new diagnoses by medicalizing ordinary life experiences or expanding existing diagnoses by lowering thresholds or widening criteria without evidence of improved outcomes. Individuals derive no clinical benefit from overdiagnosis, although they may experience physical, psychological or financial harm
1: informative it's informative it's quite a long definition but it is quite succinct i like all the ground that you've covered there, and i think um although lisa is no longer with us i'm sure she would be um smiling and celebrating with you and barry at the inclusion um of this following that very painful search that you did in 2013
4: yeah lisa would have would have loved it i mean this is something that was on her um list of things for us to do and uh, i think she would have been thrilled Thrilled by it.
1: Now, the overdiagnosis community is quite international, but quite small. Um, and and the, and the BMJ and Dartmouth and some other partners have been involved in organising this conference on preventing overdiagnosis for some years now. And we've had to go, we've had to go online this year. And I wanted to pick your brain, um, Stephen, on how you think the series of webinars is going, because we've had a couple over the last few months, um, particularly on the history of overdiagnosis and on a sort of basic look through an introduction to overdiagnosis, which has been really interesting. And I would urge um, any listeners who are very interested to get more into this area to go and have a listen to those. But for those people who are short of time, and we know that everyone is short of time, um, I thought, Stephen, I'd just ask you um, about those two sessions, about history and about the basics a little bit and um, share some of your wisdom. Um, So when you listened to the session on um, the history of overdiagnosis, what jumped out to you? What did you learn?
4: Um, well, I'm happy to answer your question, but as long as you promise to remind listeners to go to the Preventing Overdiagnosis website.
1: I will. I think you've just done that. And Duncan will put it in the link.
4: <laughs> Preventing Overdiagnosis, one word, dot net. Um, and, uh, but the interesting thing I thought about the history of overdiagnosis session was just that the concept of overdiagnosis goes way back, um, and the word itself has been in the medical literature for quite some time. So Scott Podolsky, a historian at Harvard, traced um, back um, the, the first use of overdiagnosis in the medical literature to the early 1920s. I think it was in a New England Journal article it was um, It was about overdiagnosis of tuberculosis, not a, a cancer, but it, it was a wonderful session. Um, there are so many interesting papers and it 's also interesting how many things that we think are new now go back like there, for example there 's a, a graph that a lot of us use to show the sort of epidemiologic signature of of overdiagnosis, where you show over time that the incidence of a disease is going up and up and up, but mortality or advanced disease is flat. That graph, the, the first version of that graph, um, it's, um, we saw one from 1979. So a lot of your listeners yeah. weren't even been, uh, born then. So anyway, it's just, it's just, it's just great to, to, to get a historian to help us take a look at, uh, back to see.
1: And what were those other... Um i i love that figure that epidemiological signature that you call it of the rising um incidence and the flat um morbidity or mortality um what are the other kind of hallmark key principles um that got covered in the session on the sort of basics of overdiagnosis that you think look here we go we've got We've got a couple of minutes with the listeners of Talk Evidence. What should everyone know about overdiagnosis, apart from that epidemiological signature?
4: Yeah, well, the epidemiological signature, <laughs> it's, it's fun. <laughs> I hope to see it. Um, but um, the introductory session talked about a lot of stuff. It talked about, first of all, definitions, you know, so what is overdiagnosis and what it isn't. Um, and, um, and then there was a, um, particularly there was, a, so there was some focus on, overdiagnosis in cancer and screening, but then there was also a session on expanding disease definitions. Julian Treadwell um, led, led that bit. And he just made the point. I mean, this was, I there's a great quote from him. He said, D- disease definitions are not fixed by nature, but are defined by professionals. And the important thing is, there is he's just pointing out that when you change the definition of a disease, it has all sorts of ramifications on the number of people affected. And you have to think about what are the benefits and harms? At some point, as the definition changes, does the balance of benefit and harm change in a bad direction? And you have to think about that um, and you really need to justify that. The other things in the session there was um there was some discussion about some of the drivers of of overdiagnosis and trying to think about ways to um to put to push back. So
1: and it's yeah. interesting how diverse some of those drivers are because you might think I think people think of overdiagnosis and and sometimes perhaps the community has there's a sense that um it has a kind of anti-commercialization or agenda but actually the drivers are very um very diverse.
4: Yeah, I mean right it's it's easy to assume that this is all about someone Someone who's being greedy and wants to make money from you know expanding a disease definition or or uh, you know creating new screening programs or something but that's you know that's only a bit of it i mean there's there's many reasons why you know one of the big drivers is 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 a cultural driver that this idea that more is better earlier is better um you know um and then the related um they're related phenomena, like, you know, there's a fear of malpractice, for example, on the part of practitioners, because they're afraid if they don't test, they're going to miss something and then get in trouble. You know, doctors get sued for failing to diagnose, but rarely, I can't think of any examples where they're sued for diagnosing or overdiagnosing. Um, you know, and then there's, in addition to financial interests, um, there are also non-financial um, but important interests. You know, there's a true belief, if I'm a, a researcher or a clinician who's f- dedicated My life to, um, you know, to fighting this, you know, particular condition or disease. I want to do everything I can to, 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 to push forward the idea that you can be diagnosed early and you can be treated and so on. The problem is, you know, there are always downsides. There's no, no free lunch in, 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 in medicine. Overdiagnosis, there's a lot that's counterintuitive, um, and unfamiliar and sometimes scary, especially in the context of, cultures where for years people have been primed to think that more is better this idea that maybe we're saying maybe more isn't better sometimes people wonder that maybe the financial conflict of interest is on the other side that they're just trying to you know we're just trying to save money by not spending you know our resources on diagnosis and treatment so that's a really important issue to help people understand you know what what the, when they're offered a test or a treatment, they have to understand what's in it for them. What are the benefits and harms, and uncertainties? And with screening and um, testing um, and overdiagnosis, these issues are can sometimes be really, really close calls.
0: So it seems like overdiagnosis, is kind of moving into this this mainstream. Have either of you heard of this American philosopher called Thomas Kuhn?
2: I've heard of him, but if if you make me try to tell you what his philosophy is, I'll embarrass myself.
1: (laughs) No, but I think you said his name before.
2: I'm sure I have. Uh,
1: I think you might be a bit obsessed.
0: (laughs) A a little bit. He just did this really interesting work on this like structure of scientific revolution. Um, And as a side Helen, he introduced one of the terms which I think you banned from analysis when you were editing that, which is a. Let para- me guess.
1: Is it paradigm shift? It is. Hold oh. well on.
0: Um, he was the one who coined that phrase. I'm uh, talking specifically about this, but.
1: I,
2: I think I have his book on my shelf. Hold on. I- <laughs> <laughs> uh,
0: um,
1: it's a very interactive episode today.
0: But what he really talks about is how ideas move from being like fringe to mainstream. Uh, in science, it's not linear. There are these sort of churns of things. And it feels like overdiagnosis has really, since we first started doing it, moved into this um, much more mainstream kind of point of view. So you do you feel like your work there is uh, is perhaps done, Helen?
1: No, not at all. Not at all. Because, well, I think the thing with, with overdiagnosis now is um, there's been so much work to develop... Um, the concepts, to bring it to people's attention, to get it on people's radars, to build up examples across a whole range of diagnoses and symptoms in medicine. Um, so I think everyone knows that it's there now. I think the the work now is really to fix it, um, to fix it and to help with implementation and de-implementation and communication um, to patients and the public of what it means and the, the other very exciting um interplay i think between um overdiagnosis and broadly kind of medical excess is between that and environmental issues um, so i think i think far from being towards the end of its journey i think it's just just really um at its start and entering a new phase but i would never call it a paradigm shift <laughs> <laughs>
0: we'll ban it from the podcast as well then um so, kind of bucking the trend on overdiagnosis, uh, our last paper today is um, is saying perhaps do think about cancer as a, uh, as a possibility. Uh, who wants to tell me about that one?
1: I will. I will. Um, and this sort of begins with all the ha- hallmarks of not overdiagnosis, if you if you um, have a think about it, because this is about taking people who are presenting with a problem and with a symptom and trying to help them with something. So they are they are um, by default in a situation where they have something going on. This is not a glamorous topic. We're talking about urinary retention, very common. It's estimated that about one in 10 men in their 70s and perhaps about a third of men in their 80s will develop acute urinary retention at some point in time. Um, that can happen for a whole load of reasons, obstruction, infection inflammation, drugs that they're taking, neurological problems. Um, And although it's much more unusual, it does also happen in women, where apparently, I did not know this, detrusor muscle failure is the most common cause amongst women, I learnt by reading this paper. Um, But in men, it's typically obstruction. And the thing that we all think of is about benign prostate problems, but always a little bit in the back of your mind, you have this slight concern about uh, prostate cancer. But is that all? Because case reports have also suggested that acute urinary retention can be the presenting sign of other cancers aside from prostate cancer and there was a little bit of work the authors say done back in the late 70s early 80s on looking at um, associations with other cancers but that was quite some time ago so what these authors wanted to do was to estimate the risk of urogenital colorectal and neurological cancers amongst patients who were um, presenting with um, acute urinary retention for hospital admission compared to the general population. Um, And that seems like quite a a good way to start measuring this because most people, or at least certainly within the UK, most people who suddenly develop acute urinary retention are admitted up to hospital to have it investigated and work out what's going on. This study, however, is done in Denmark, uh, where there are about um, 6 million people. Um, in 2018 the authors say they have um, some nice registries which is going to excite uh, Joe Um, they have a primary care based system and they've linked together these different registries that they've got the national um, patient registry which has got data on admissions and about prior diagnoses which might be linked to you having um, urinary difficulties and also to the Danish cancer registry so they have about 75,000 people who are over 50 who do not have cancer um, when they get admitted who go in um, for their first uh, contact. They actually look at inpatient, outpatient or emergency department diagnosis of acute urinary retention between 1995 and 2017. And then they look at um, the association with cancer being diagnosed over the coming months and years What they find is that about half of all the patients had got a previous urogenital diagnosis of some kind, whether that's benign prostatic hyperplasia, multiple sclerosis, diabetes, that kind of thing. And about nearly a third of them had a previous neurological diagnosis and 13% of them had diabetes. So that's the kind of flavour of of who we're talking about here. Um, The key I mean, I suppose the key finding um, is that the absolute risk of prostate cancer in that group was five percent at three months after that um, presentation doesn't alter hugely actually after that. So by a year, sort of between six and seven percent might have been diagnosed with prostate cancer and eight point five percent at five years. When you then go into the other cancers, which are obviously rarer, um, the absolute risk of a urinary tract cancer elsewhere was um, 1.3% at three months, 1.8% at a year, 2.5% at five years. When you go into even um, perhaps more unusual cancers that might present in that way, um, they found uh, 80 genital cancers versus five um, that they might have expected, and they found 200. so they found 273 colorectal cancers when they might have expected um, 63 at three months. So their kind of key message is that you should consider occult cancer in patients who are presenting with acute urinary retention and they have no obvious underlying cause. Um, I'm going to pause and see what Joe thinks. This is your zone, Joe. Whole country studies registries. of lots of registries all linked together. Um but I mean, it always gets complicated, doesn't it? I've made it sound really simple and straightforward. And now you're going to get go, oh well, but this, that, and the other. So tell us, tell us the this, that, and the yeah. other.
2: No, I'm I'm not sure it's really a this, <laughs> that, and the other type of paper. I mean, you know, big big registry data papers, you know, can are useful in that they can help provide some insights into sort of otherwise hard to detect phenomena, right? And so in this case. You know, as clinicians, when we admit patients with this sort of sentinel diagnosis, acute urinary retention, we're all concerned about a, a kind of a big bad thing that that's causing it. Right. And these patients underwent the workup and no big bad thing was found. But at the end of the day, we're always like, well, how good is our workup? Now, this is not like a, you know, a soup to nuts prognostic t- paper that's telling us, you know, what is the risk it, but it is providing some levels of estimates uh, to help us kind of, you know, just think about, you know, how how carefully do we need to continue to surveil these patients? You know, is further intervention or diagnostic workup necessary? How long does that risk persist? And, you know, for uh, this is kind of like a classic clinical epidemiology paper in, in that respect. And, you know, and what they find, you know, the vast majority of the sample is men, like, you know, Helen, just as you described in terms of the risk incidence, I think over 80% are men. And the vast majority of the excess cancers observed were prostate cancers, so it is kind of what we would fear and uh you know it does suggest particularly for prostate cancer risk that we you know we have to be on guard. All of that excess risk happens in the first year, you know in the really in the first three months, but up to twelve months later, there's an excess risk of these cancers being I- identified not not any longer than that. There's slightly increased risk of some of the bladder cancers and the colorectal cancers, not really in the nervous. Uh, cancer, uh, nervous system cancers. But, you know, I think for clinicians, this is one of those kind of food for thought papers and you now have to weigh um, the kind of, you've done the workup in the patient, was the full workup done? Are you sure that there was no occult cancer? Do you bring them back in three months and do more? There's not, you know, obviously there hasn't been a trial to demonstrate that that will mitigate that this excess risk, uh, but I think it's uh, it's it's useful in sort of the steps towards further study, and it's a great way to leverage data like this uh, to help us better understand disease courses and prognosis.
1: Well, you said I think what's going to be my favorite word of the day today: surveil. I think you use okay. that in the context of a verb. I think that might only exist in the U.S., mm. but I enjoyed that word. Um, <laughs> And you also said, um, this is not a proper prognostic study. So that I think is an interesting place to pause on. If you're out there as a reader, a clinical reader, how are you spotting and how are we kind of conceptualizing the evolution between going, oh, here's a link, which might be interesting towards getting really towards prognosis?
2: Well, you know, I think the, uh, you know, when you when you start thinking about a, a prognostic study, right? Th- you know, the key for those papers, right, are, are those types of research studies. Are you know, do you have an inception cohort? Is everybody kind of coming in at the same s- stage of disease? Um, what's you know, is the referral pattern consistent with what you see in care? You know, are, how are the outcome criteria being applied? Some of those aspects with a registry study like this, you you can kind of argue well you know we know that everybody had no diagnosis of cancer and they were admitted and the fi- final diagnosis was acute urinary retention that's pretty good you don't know exactly what was done in the hospital you don't know how uh, intense the workup was you know perhaps people were admitted The urinary retention resolved and they were sent back to see their primary care doctor in a week where they were going to get a terp or, you know, they were going to get a a, a prostate cancer screening test or what or then they were going to get their ultrasound. Like you don't know exactly what what was the stage. So that's why I say this is more provocative than convincing. If you knew that everyone came into the hospital, everyone got the same series of tests. Everyone was told you don't have cancer. And then everyone was followed uniformly, not just sort of passively waiting to see what happens. That that gives you a good sense of kind of the prognosis of this diagnosis of acute urinary retention without cancer in terms of follow on risk. But that's not to say this is not useful. Those types of prognostic studies aren't done so much anymore, unfortunately. And so instead we do leverage observ- observational data like these large registries to get close to it. Uh, but but that, and that, look, that, that's the what i I guess the
1: challenge here is that you'd need so many people in a cohort like that um, to, to be looking for these cancers, which are relatively rare. And you can see that in the, you know, to get this 75,000 patients, to get, get these kind of nice estimates that they've got in this paper, they've had to include people from 1995 to, to 2017. So to your point, even if what happens in Denmark when you get urinary retention is pretty... Um, um, Regulated, You know, there's a standard workup. It's unlikely that that workup has been the same from 1995 to, to 2017. Maybe we're going to get lots of urologists telling us that we're absolutely wrong. It's been the same <laughs> way. <laughs> but it's definitely in the pre-PSA era, 1995. Well, it's, it's, pre, some,
2: it, the, it's definitely in the like, we didn't know what we were doing with the PSA era. And also on top of that, you know, think of the changes in, in imaging technology over that time. You know, maybe people were getting ultrasounds, CTs were expensive, MRIs were were unheard of in the 90s. By now, you know, you cough or sneeze in an emergency room and you're sent into the MRI to make sure that you don't have like <laughs> viral inflammation in your lungs. I mean, I'm obviously exaggerating, but, you know, the technologies are different in terms of how we do workups.
0: Well, that's something to uh, leave our listeners with. Uh, thanks for that provocation joke Uh, and thank you to Helen and uh, thank you to Steve Bullishim for joining us on the podcast today that's it for this episode but we'll be back again in a month's time with more from the world of EBM so make sure you subscribe on Apple Podcasts Spotify or wherever else you get your podcasts from until then it's goodbye from me
1: goodbye from me
0: goodbye from me Take care out there.
3: Some of life's most important questions are about health. And when people think about healthcare, they think about doctors, scans, tests, and treatments. At Siemens Health and Ears, we think about those too. With about 70% of clinical decisions based on laboratory test results, staying on top of the latest advances in clinical chemistry is essential to providing the best care. This November, Siemens Healthineers has free online educational sessions to help you learn about relevant advances in clinical diagnostics. Register for free today to explore sessions featuring new research and innovations in cardiac care, blood diseases, and AI, and create an agenda for live streaming events visit Siemens-Healthineers.com slash or Google Siemens Healthineers Euromed Lab. We pioneer breakthroughs in healthcare for everyone, everywhere.